Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm your other host, Duncan Nickel. You didn't got anything cute to say, Duncan? I considered something about, like, slamming nails into a column for every person I've murdered, but that didn't come across as cute to me. Okay, gotcha. You didn't also want to do extremely buxom sailor woman? Again, didn't come across as cute to me. Okay, gotcha. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Is This Just Fantasy? Um, every two weeks, Duncan and I get together, and because we're such big fans of fantasy literature, we read a book. And then we get together to discuss it. That's right, but it's not just about our opinions, people. Oh, no, we also no. want to hear about what you have to think about the book. You know, This is a book club. We're trying to host a forum to hear your opinions. So if you do have opinions on the book this week, which is Red Nails, or That's Story right. this week, I should say, or mm. any of the other works that we have covered or say we're going to cover, please write in at isthisjustfancypodcast at gmail.com and let us know your thoughts, and we'll talk about them here. That's right. And Duncan's right to say that this is a short story, not a novel. Uh, Duncan's going to be off on a holiday next week, and actually, so will I. And um, we wanted to make sure that uh, we got an episode out there ahead of time, so that we didn't have a big gap in our schedule. Oh, I so need to break, Geordie. It's been oh, so yeah. long for me. Well, I'm glad you're going to be uh, going to be refreshed. Where are you going? Uh, I'm going down to the same place as my last holiday. It's actually the exact same holiday again. Um, <laughs> I'm taking a stack of books down to uh, the county of Cornwall in mm. the south of England. And I'm going to read them. Okay, what you bringing along with you? Well, um, I'm going to bring. I'm probably going to bring about four books with me for the week. Uh, I'm going to take three of them now, and then one I'll save to the end. Um, and those ah. books are uh, Joe Abercrombie's The Heroes. Okay. Um, in his sort of this continuation after his first law trilogy, which I've already read, mm. and I'm very excited to continue. I'm gotcha. going to take with me Darkness at Sethanon, the final in the Rift War original Rift War trilogy. Alrighty. And I will probably throw a Star Wars book on top just in case I finish everything else. Mm. And the final book, I'll tell you later. Alrighty, great. Uh, all books I've never heard of, so this is a promising <laughs> start. So, Jordy, how's this your week been? I mean, this was a short story, so did you get any, get any no extra things in there? Yeah, I definitely did. In fact, I was so confident about um, how short this story is that I didn't even start reading it until today. <laughs> I was like, it can't be that long. I'll just catch it later, like right before the show. And then it'll be nice and fresh in my memory. And it is only like 70 pages long. Um, and I like was, I was going for a walk after getting back from a trip I'd been on. And I was like, okay, well, since I'm going on a trip, I might as well look for one of those public domain people reading this book on Spotify things. And then I found out, oh no, in an audiobook form, this is five hours long. My show is in less than five hours. So I did what I swore I would never do. I cranked up the speed to 1.5. For shame. Yeah, I For don't. Shame. I, yeah, it's, it's against my philosophy. And so it's a very ready to hear a story being written to you like this. Especially when I'm doing Conan. I kind of like... <laughs> um, um, so I, I literally cut short my walk. Like I, I took a shorter path. I took a shortcut back home so I could stop listening to it and get out my physical copy of the complete Chronicles of Conan so I could read it properly <laughs> at an appropriate pace. That's so nice. Sorry, I've been deficient. Well, I didn't quite do that. I, I did plan ahead. 
Uh, oh. I read this earlier in the week. I read this about three days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it's so short, Jordi, I end up reading a, another book. Okay, what else should we be reading? Wow. So you've read now, is it? It got me on that Conan Conan train, mate. Oh, and yeah, I just wanted it to keep chugging along. So <laughs> I read Conan the Marauder by John Maddox Roberts. I see. Uh, he'll be one of the many uh, pastiche writers of Conan, I suppose. He most certainly is. He wrote, I believe, eight Conan novels um, Only under eight. the Tor label. Only eight. I think the most someone else has written is, I think, is 11. That would be uh, Sprague Lecomte? Uh, no, that would be Leonard Carpenter. Gotcha. Um, but he definitely is, if you're interested in the Pache rankings, um, he's definitely one of the, the up there. He's... I always, when it comes to the Conan Pesce's, I think you can see them in kind of two lights. You've got how good they are as a book and like a story and how good they are as a Conan story. Gotcha. And uh, John Roberts, I think he gets Conan. He gets him very well. He definitely ranks highly there. Even if his plots are not as strong as others, uh, I would compare, I would put him on the same footing as like Robert Jordan's Conan. Robert Jordan with a time frame. Um, Robert Jordan, I think, wrote better stories but got Conan less well I think John Roberts maybe his plots aren't as strong as Robert as Jordan's but like his Conan talks with the same voice I think as Robert E. Howard's one does Mm. and that among the Pache's authors is quite a special thing well I guess you are coming there for the Conan it'd be like reading fan fiction you want the characters to sound like they do in the actual story and not just the author's OCs being reskinned in order to make fandoms read, you know, the book they already wanted to read. I'm definitely not pointing any fingers back from my teenage years, but, you know, <clears throat> they're out there. They're still out there. And they will forever be out there, Dordie. Yep. On the internet, someone could find them. No matter how successful you are, they're there. I'm not talking about my fanfiction. My fanfiction is very good, but no, no more about my fanfiction. <clears throat> uh, I've also been reading some books. Um, you go on. My fanfiction was all very in character, or at least as much as I could within the constraints of a story. Sometimes characters act in ways which are really difficult to translate to a story because they're, you know, they're not really built around being the main character of a story if they aren't already the main character of their original work. You know, Duncan. Anyway, that's not what we're talking about. Speaking of fanfiction. Um, well, I read a very strange book, uh, this week, which is that, this is one I've had in my, um, I've had in my audio book library for a long time. I was like, I bought, I know why I bought this, but I don't know if it was a great idea. And that is I Strahd. I Strahd is a Dungeons and Dragons tie-in novel because, because Duncan is dragging me into the pits. Um, I'm and... very proud of this, by the way. Yeah. You will fall down. You will see the wonder which is quickly put out tie in media. It is certainly pro- I think it probably was pretty quickly put out. People st- uh, stand by this one. They they seem people really seem to like it. They talk about it a lot in discussions around Ravenloft in the Dungeons and Dragons world. It's the origin story for the character of Strad von Zarevich, who's the villain behind um you know, Curse of Strahd and the Ravenloft module. He's a vampire. How did he become a vampire? 
Um, why does he have such a hang up about his brother and his brother's girlfriend? Um, it's all in this story. Uh, quite frankly, I think my buddy Tom did a better job of telling the story of Strahd. Um, but it's fine. It's fine. Like, it's just fine. You really can't see anything about it. It's inoffensive. There's some decently written sword fights. Uh, the plot meanders a lot in very strange ways. Did not expect the climax of the story, like the emotional climax, to happen at the halfway point. Kind of expected that to be the big culmination of the story. Um, so a little bit rushed. But honestly, it's it's fine. It's fine. It's Do you fine. know what? I think that's often kind of the best you need to hope for. A lot of the time when it comes to these sort of tie-in works, you've got to remember that they are tie they are tie-ins in the sense that they've been written with the perspective that you're coming already as a fan. It's like, completely that's completely the case, yes. You know, it's not trying to like reel you in or incite new readers. It's basically saying you really liked like that setting, you really liked that D and D campaign, but it's over now and your 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 mate he ain't DMing it again for you. He's exactly. tired. And, and you need a fix. This will give you a fix. Yeah, I sort of I assumed it was gonna be like it was going to be written for Dungeon Masters and sort of a bit of bonus content. Like, you want to give your Strahd extra depth? Okay, here's an author dedicating an entire novel to giving the character more depth. And um, I guess it's probably a success, but I don't think there's anything more there than a brief character bio of Strahd and a particularly imaginative Dungeon Master could have done. But like I said, it's fine. However, speaking of um of D&D tie-in novels, um, I... I uh, I, I was doing, um, Audible sent me a recommendation after completing Strahd, which was to read, um, an R.A. Salvatore novel, um, who is the creator of the character of Dritzto Erden and the Crystal Shard and stuff like that. And I, that's how I found out that R.A. Salvatore's latest book was called The Starlight Enclave. Because he's trying to make money off of dyslexics, I guess. <laughs> oh, oh, Salvatore! I I've actually never read any of his work. I actually own several of his books. I own his um his Star Wars novel as well. The Clone uh, Wars. Such good stuff. Uh, sorry, his... not the Clone Wars. Um, Attack of the Clones, right? He wrote two. He wrote the Attack of the Clones novelization, and the actual one I own is Vector Prime, which kicked off the New Jedi Order wave of Star Wars. I won't get into it here. It, it was like, basically, instead of having like everyone write like a, a little tie-in novel or little trilogy, they had this idea of, um, we're going to have like 19 books and we're going to plan it all out and it's all going to have one big storyline. And he kicked it off. Um, and it's, it's praise. You know, this, he gets a lot of praise. I'd love to read, potentially, some of his like original work. I think there was a lot of these authors that write tie-in novels. And I think this is a sign... You Does know, he have original work? He's written like 40 Dritzt books. Thing is though, when you have something like Dritzt, at what point is it basically original work? At what point has he added so much to the lore and the setting that you just could be like, "Well, this is just his setting now." I mean, I haven't that, read them, so I don't know. But that, do you I, feel like that might be the case? I've only read the first three of the Dritzt books, and they're pretty good. Uh, I don't. I, I yeah. I mean, reading through *Rhyme and a Frost Maiden*, I had the same attitude toward it as I did to to reading *I Strahd*. I went through and I said. I'm going to run Rhyme and a Frostmaiden, so I might as well learn a little bit about the setting. And reading through Rhyme and a Frostmaiden, I'm like, oh yeah, all of this is just built off of ideas which um, R.A. Salvatore came up with. Like, this is his 
This is an area he made, and now you're like other people have come in to fill in the gaps later. So good for you, Ravatory, Alvatory, Salvatore. Have you ever read a um, Forgotten Realms novel by Steve Perry? I've never read a Forgotten Realms novel that was not written by R.A. Salvatore. I've read the first two chapters of one, and it was so bad that I swore I'd never read another D&D time novel. (laughs) I would love to know who wrote that. Um, I'm sorry for all the Steve Perry fans out there, but I know he wrote a lot for Forgotten Realms. He wrote a Star Wars book, which I have read. And he wrote some of the absolute worst Conan Pachet novels that were ever put out. I might not actually have access to this book anymore because I used to have two Audible accounts and it might have been on my other one. Um, When I went to America, my my audible.co.uk profile stopped working and I had to get a new .com one, but eventually I figured out I could get access to both. And I had two Audible credits a month. Oh, it was a, it was a good time to be alive. Do you know what this conversation is reminding me uh, to look at my notes again, and the fact that this is episode is titled Red Nails. I don't understand um, what you're saying, but it is reflective in my notes. If you were to look at my notes, Jordi, right now, you'd think I was either not a fan of this story or bored by it. A lot of my notes are things I don't like, and just tidbits of information about the Conan timeline and <laughs> Pache's authors that built off the characters and adaptations and the really good comic adaptions and very little is me going oh yeah I like this bit of the plot or the writing it appears to be by Stephen E. Shend the worst D&D book that I've read but let's talk about Red Nails uh, well, this was your pick, Dordy. Why don't you I mean, introduce that's, this story? Uh, you're giving me too much credit. But um, uh, The Red Nails is a Conan novella. It's um, it's quite short, only 70 pages long. Though it did feel a bit longer whilst I was reading it. Certainly longer than, say, Tower of the Elephant. It's a fairly compact story. Um, rather dramatic at times. Uh, it chiefly concerns the character of Conan and the character of Valeria introduced within this novella. Valeria makes a very, very sudden change from most of the female characters written by Robert E. Howard. In fact, she's written to be cool. Um, like, she's also... She's a pirate, and she's a fighter, and is, like, dependable and stuff. And that's pretty great um, in concept. Delivery, we shall discuss. Um, they venture through a jungle and find themselves in a lost city from a lost civilization which is having some sort of deadly feud. Um, And after getting involved in the feud, well, everything goes a bit crazy. Murder, sacrifice, monsters are abound, undead wizards with laser guns. It's It really, really goes to places you do not expect. And um, it's extremely racist. Like, way more racist than I remembered it being. I knew it was racist. Let's get something out there. But I thought it was going to be like a, you know, a chill, low-key kind of racism. But it was more like out-there phrenology racism, you know? Like Conan was measuring people's skulls and racism. It was uncomfortable on a reread. And it made me really have to take a long, hard look at myself and go, why don't I remember it being this bad? See, Because it shocked me. Mm-hmm. 
how the racism in this short story and also what really made me quite appalled is that it's often needless it's really needless racism the story could be it could be edited round in fact if i had this in a word doc lordy i could probably take out not even paragraphs i probably could go through take out about 30 sentences page worth of content mate max sure and then it would be It'd still be a bit sexist. Yes. But it wouldn't be racist. But the thing is, I remember this being the really sexist one. And I think that's why the racism sort of fell into the background. Like, I knew it was there passively. It's hard not to be really when it's like a Conan story. Like, it's a, a miasma the character's always breathing in. I just remember the misogyny. Didn't remember the rest. I think that there's a reason why you might not remember the racism, Duncan. Mm-hmm. And I think it's exactly that. It's that it is so pointless, and it is so thrown in in narration, not in dialogue most of the time, that I bet, because you've probably read this in the form of comic books, I bet it probably doesn't come across as obvious, because you just see the characters depicted and not what Robert E. Howard wants you to know about black people, you know? That is exactly right, Jordi. Uh, In my notes here, I've written down, there's a particularly great comic adaption of this story, um, by Roy Thomas and Bay Windsor Smith. Uh, it's done by Marvel in these, I think it's the late 70s. And. You love your 70s Marvel. Love your 70s Marvel. Do you know what's great? When 70s Marvel censors out the racism and brings it up to that 70s standard and makes sure. the story more palatable. Now, let's not completely wash them blind because you've, you gave me one of your 70s Conan comics. And I did point out to you that all of the women are white. Like, in foreign countries, Duncan, uh, sorry, Conan will meet, like, foreigners, but when it comes time to meet a sexy lady, she'll be white. That is, you're sounding like I, I like, approve of that fact. No, I am obviously not doing that, Duncan. We've had, we've, we discussed in episode one of this very show uh, about our complex feelings about Conan the Barbarian. And we can t- go into that again, but... You're very right, and it's kind of hard to separate what's enjoyable about this text because it is so mired and smeared with this awful... And like I said, need racism. The sexism in this particular story, I don't think I could edit round, or it'd be much harder. Yeah, it sort of is intrinsic to the body of the text. Like, Conan isn't there without misogyny. The villain's plot doesn't work without misogyny. It just doesn't really fly without that. And I think that's probably why it sticks out in my brain more so than the racism did. So let's let's address then that aspect of misogyny as well. So we said that the racism sure. is very much in the narrator's voice. It's needless and it's distracting and it's very it's unpleasant. It makes me It is unpleasant. Not it, I don't there's two kind of levels here. On the one hand, it's just, it's appalling. It's you know, disgusting racism. I don't want to have to, I don't want to be exposed to that because it's not, it's not racist. It's not depicting racism. I think that's a very good thing to differentiate. This isn't a story depicting racism. This is a no. story written by a racist person who has yeah. racist views and is putting it into their that's right. voice. It is a racist story. Yeah, there's nothing intelligent or profound about it. It's just, it's just it's just that those parts of it just suck. They just dredge. But when we come to the... And the second part of that is how it then makes me feel just sad. 
not disgusted, I'm sad because you can almost see, you can still see the quality of Robert E. Howard's action adventure, heroic fantasy yep. writing coming through. Because mm-hmm. when it takes the time to not be racist and Conan's just fighting a dragon like creature, it's yeah. really good. In fact, it's right. It's, it's true. It sucks that someone of great talent has been drawn to evil. It's like watching Anakin fall to the dark side. Like you've got damn good pros. You got a real sense for adventure. There's a sword fight in this, which is literally one of the best sword fights I've ever read in a story. And it could have been so cool. Like Valeria is such a missed opportunity. Like she's awesome and she should be completely awesome. But she's so bogged down by Robert E. Howard's inability to even conceptualize of, like, a strong female character. He has this really, like, warped perception of of just women in, in general. Like, this is the quintessential um, male writer, you know, writing a woman. Like, down to the vivid descriptions of her bodies at really inopportune times. I've got to think, I found, I was looking for, and I found a section of his story, which I think encapsulates this perfectly. The way in which Robert E. Howard is a beautiful writer, and yet only uses it for evil. Conan had discarded the remnants of his tattered, blood-shoked shirt, and stood with his remarkable muscular development impressively revealed. His great shoulders were as broad as those of Olmec, and more cleanly outlined, and his huge breast arched with a more impressive sweep to a hard waist that lacked the paunchy thickness of Olmec's midsection. He might have been an image of primal strength cut out of bronze. Olmec was darker, but not from the burning of the sun. If Conan was a figure out of the dawn of time, Olmec was a shambling, somber shape from the darkness of time's pre-dawn. It's cringy. It's hurtful. It's cringy. Because it was doing it so, so well. And this, I say, like, I don't need to rewrite this story. I just need my editing scissors. I just need to cut Mm -hmm. a few words out of there. For that reason, I feel like this is probably a really adaptable story. Like, I think you've told me that there are plans to make a, like, animated adaptation of Red Nails, right? There were. They're not actually, sorry, people, getting your hopes up there. There was. This was in the pipeline, I think about 10 years ago. I think even uh, Mm. Ron Perlman was slated to voice Conan. And if you go onto YouTube, you can see, like, test footage. I'll be honest, it it looks a little bit like the uh, Berserk movies that came out with that pseudo, like, CG. Well, I'm assuming this is, like the first stage of animation, right? It's not like they were making a finished product. Absolutely, no. This is, like, very early days. Mm-hmm. But it works, because I can see why you would pick this story. It has a really... Yeah, because it, it's exciting, and it's mysterious, and there's lots of action. Shall we talk about some good things about this story? Yeah, sure. And then what we can do is then we'll finish... We'll circle back... Around. It's almost like a... Have you ever, when you go and do, like, training sessions for your corporate entities or I don't know, like teacher or mentor or training. They talk about like feedback sandwiches. It's like, sure. Yeah. Start off with a positive statement, then give like the critical feedback and then end with like a nice statement again. I don't think this, okay. this story deserves that. I think, I think we're kind of doing the opposite, yeah, right? You've got to start off. This is what's wrong. You need to know that this story has major issues. Then we're going to do the bread and be like, but here are some nice things. And now here's the other major issue 
why <laughs> it, it can't work and why it's so sad that we can't enjoy something that yeah. is on a technical level good. So crack on, Duncan. Tell us more about what's good. What's good about this story? This story, in its short 70 pages, manages to build several very well-defined um, aspects of mystery and adventure and exploration. We start off going mm-hmm. through the jungle. You get this lovely moment of uh, Conan coming in and he's he looks up on a on, goes up onto an outcrop and he looks out and surveys the environment and you see the mysterious city and it just kind of sets that up show away oh why is the city here what's going on where's this adventure leading us you get an action piece this huge set piece with this dragon-like creature who's inferred to be more of a dinosaur than yeah a it's li- it's great that's i remember so here's the strangest thing i have this really weird image of the dragon in my head which came from my first reading of this story. And the first time I read it, um, I really focused on the fact that it had like gigantic eyes that were forward-facing and short legs, which meant that the image I had developed in my head was this really, really weird creature. Short, stubby legs and a big owl face, basically. Like, that's (laughs) what I was imagining the first time I read the story. But reading it through again, it's like, oh, it's a Spinosaurus. It's literally just a Spinosaurus. And what's so cool about that element that it really lends you to work that out for yourself. You get the initial it's description true. and then later we're told about the bones. Like these creature bones were just in the area and then necromancers like resurrected them. But what really works about this... Action... Literally didn't even... I missed that the first time I read it years ago. <laughs> I didn't even realise that Necromancer brought him back. I just assumed it was just dinosaurs kicking around. But what works here is you get that Conan action scene. Kind of led. You get the moment where he first sees the creature and you got the... Okay, he's staying cool. He's a cool action hero. But then it has this mm-hmm. wonderful bit where he's... Conan shows how clever he is. He thinks mm-hmm. through a strategy. He goes, right, my sword can't penetrate its scales. So what am I going to do? And he goes through, he's like, well, I can't climb out through the trees. The branches are too thin. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't stay on this rock. I'll starve or die off first. So what he ends up doing, he takes this dirk. He he ties it round a shaft to make a bit of a spear. And then he mm-hmm. like leans out and pierces this fruit that he knows to have like a poisonous effect. Mm-hmm. And then he waits and he subtly stands just above the creature, just until it extends its jaw and then drives his makeshift poison spear into like its gum line to poison mm. it and it's like oh. it shows the thinking man he's not just like ducking and weaving and taking hacks of it with his broadsword yeah yeah it's true it's um it's a nice moment of like developing a strategy and it also goes beyond like that's not the winning move like that's just like the opening gambit because after that the poison doesn't immediately kill the beast it like it turns it blind and like makes it really thirsty so it goes running off and so he says to Valeria, okay, we didn't kill it, but let's just run now because we bought ourselves this opportunity. And that's great because it's a plan that would work. And they go running out, out of the jungle, into the clearing. And then, oh no, the wind turns. We ramp up the tension. The dragon can smell them now. It comes chasing after them. And Conan gets to have this, this moment where, like, where Valeria falls and he stands heroically and, like, tanks one hit from the dragon that would kill any lesser man. And then, because again, it can't kill it by dodging out of the way of it afterwards, 
it like runs into a tree and like breaks its neck. And uh, it's, it's, it's really good like culmination of an action scene. And I was like, wow, that was that was well written and well structured. And it felt cool and heroic. Good job. It just makes me more sad. The more we praise, it's like it just ends that, that kind of painful scene. But other things that are really good about this. The mystery of the Forgotten City and the world building that we get when he gets to this. Uh, it's almost, I say Forgotten City. It is a city, but it's all enclosed. Mm-hmm. It's more like a gigantic castle. Exactly. And when we enter it, we find out about this feud between these two factions. And you hear, I love this element of, it started out because one man wanted to steal another man's wife away from him. Mm. It's actually basically, it's basically the Trojan War. I thought that. I when I was, Yeah, I was like, <laughs> halfway through like, hang on a second. We already did this one. But it really builds on that and it gets to the point where a lot of the people now in the war, like this is like a generation, almost two generations mm-hmm. later, and it's just sort of a, a tit for tat. Probably not the best it's way to describe revenge. it. It's a circle of revenge, you know. No one's killing because of that incident really anymore. It's like, well, they killed my cousin, so I'm going to go and attack them. Oh, no, now I've killed someone's brother. Now they're going to try and attack us. Mm-hmm. And it's like no one can find peace now because there's just too much blood spilt until basically one side is eradicated. Yeah, uh, I, I I will say that one thing I have to say slightly against is that it does feel like it happens really fast in the story. Like, they have one confrontation with the other side, and then Conan is brought in to be a mercenary and to, to fight against the other side. And then the next day, the other side launches an all-out attack because there's only 20 of them left, and then all of them die. And you're like, oh, well, that was pretty short. And it is a novella, but I also think this concept wouldn't work if it were a novel. It would be too long and too stretched out, and I don't think that would work. So I kind of feel like it's in an awkward middle ground where it's the obvious thing for Robert D. Howard to do to tell this story, but I don't think it really works out that well in the end. I think there are ways around this, though, because Robert D. Howard doesn't need to spend time describing like a week's worth of little skirmishes. He could just have a paragraph sort of saying that, you know, Conan helped them, you know, led several small campaigns. You know what, that's true, that's true, yeah. Didn't happen, though. It didn't happen. But that, that could work, like, and that could, and then you could just have little lines, like, you know, during this period, you know, Valeria felt greater concern over, I'm going to get a name wrong now, Olmec and Tasselen, uh, Tassel... Tassela? Tassela, I don't know. Thank I, you. No, I, I, I mean, I'm guessing, like, I, I don't know what to say, man. I know that our dynamic on this show is that I get the names right and you get the names wrong, but you have to take the lead on this one because we are out of our depth here. Okay, Geordie, I'm going to get some sweet, sweet revenge on you now for all those times you've made me stand here and try to pronounce names. Geordie, okay. what's the name of the city? Zuthal. Yeah, well, it's probably not Exuchol, is it? Is is that what it's called? It's X-U-C-H-O-L. Zuthal? Zuthal. Zuthal. Because there's a side that's called the Zutalandkas, right? There, there is. And the other side is called the... Toliacus? Toliacus? Tekuliti. 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 And there's a guy who's just called Tekulit, right? Or Tekul. Tekumek? I don't think either of us are winning here, Duncan. You wanted to flex on me, but you don't know either. I have no idea. I was It's crazy. And the thing is, 
The reason why the names are pretty complicated and pretty tricky is that Robert E. Howard has decided that this is an Aztec society, or at least it's Mesoamerican, and um, thus he's gone to, like, he's cracked open his encyclopedia and he's looked at what he knows about Aztec mythology, and he's fucked it up. But man, oh man, it is impossible. These names are really hard. And it, I, I bet you my bottom dollar they are not going to be actual authentic names, like from Aztec mythology or even Aztec culture, that he's just fantasified um, some Mesoamerican names. There's no way Robert E. Howard has done his research. And it's not like there's any indicators for actual culture in the story, like... I mean, for one thing, they speak Stygian, which is the Conan equivalent of Egyptian. Um, and they have, like, snakes on them, but they're not, like, described as feathered serpents. They're just supposed to be set. You know, the snake god in, in Conan. So, I mean, the first time I read this through, I had no idea they were supposed to be, like, Aztec in any way, or vaguely Mesoamerican at all. I just assumed they were just another... Southern people, like they were descendants of Stygians, it, so of course they're just Egyptian or whatever. It doesn't even align with uh, the rest of the world that Robert E. Howard kind of set out, and where other authors have taken it. Because if you go into sort of the, I'll call it the expanded Conan law, um, sure. the Aztec civilizations do have their existence. They're, they're across the Great Ocean, you know. We're we're in sort of the Europe Africa area, and and the one bit of America that it's also Scotland. E- exactly. Very common, um, of course. But it's it's established in sort of later law that you know the the Americans the Americas uh, do exist as a continent, just off the edge of the map. You know where no one has been. So Great. it doesn't align. Um, and I don't know if this was just. I think it was just the fact that we'd already had so many sort of Stygian sort of Egyptian themed names. It was just something different. It probably was just something different to him, and he didn't really think that much, and he didn't think that a bunch of pastiche authors were going to come along and try to make it all make sense later. Yeah. I don't yeah. think he would imagine you... that in a hundred years' time, two people will be talking about it on a recorded book club that gets broadcasted via the internet. I mean, he knows about the radio. He'd probably be like, I think one day two Lama fillers are going to uh, talk about my books. <laughs> I'm going to talk about my books and about how I'm better than my friend Howard Phillips. Much better. One day it'll all see, won't they? The ghost of Conan who stands behind me in case I ever get writer's block. <laughs> yes, Robert. Yes, you're right. They'll all see one day. They'll all see. Now write something racist. <laughs> uh, uh, now that Jordi's possession is over. Duncan, you mentioned um, the expanded works of Conan. Yes. And I think you mentioned before the show that you had some notes about... Um, this novel's place in the Great Conan timeline. Oh, you want me to nerd out? You want me to talk extensively about something that is tiny, obscure, and no one would be interested in? Um, I mean, obviously, yes. We have a, still have a, re- a lot of show to do, so we gotta make up that time somehow. Um, do I need to make a pot of tea, or... Because, Duncan, can I try and guess where this is within the Conan timeline? I think that would be a great start. Okay, so for those who don't know, um, Robert E. Howard wrote all of his Conan stories out of order. The first couple, um, of the first two he wrote, 
are some of the very last chronologically. He just wrote what sort of... He developed the character as he went. The third story, um, Conan of the Tower of the Elephant, is the one that sort of takes him back to his roots. And then from there, he just wrote whatever he liked. So a lot of fans and pastiche writers, later down the line, have tried to put his stories in order based upon geography and Conan's level of maturity. Those are the two things which people try and, like, assess. And thus, people draw lines on maps to show, okay, Conan is going on this journey. This is obviously, in my opinion, a very late-game Conan. Like, he mentions a whole bunch of adventures he's been on already. Not specifically by name, but he talks about lands he's been at. You know, being a Cossack and being a pirate. So it takes place after Baelit. Mm -hmm. It takes place... um. After, you know, his time as a mercenary, so it's after A Witch Shall Be Born and Black Colossus and, you know, that sort of thing. Which means that the only things that really are left to be done is his time up north in Aquilonia and the Jews of Gualeur. So I think this is probably, like, the anti-penultimate Conan story. Or, well, the... I, I forgot about the, the ones where he's king, so the pro-pre-anti-penultimate uh, Conan story. So before Jewels of Gwalur and before Beyond Thunder River and before Scarlet Citadel and blah blah blah. That's a very interesting outlook. Can I ask? Uh, firstly, it's Beyond the Black River, and secondly, just put, push my, Sorry, gl- my nerdy glasses con- up. I confused it. it with the actual Thunder River, which is a real river, um, and I think it's also quite near another river called Black River. It's a. Uh, it is in the setting Thunder River. Don't don't worry. Oh, that must be why I got confused. Oh, actually, I do know, because Thunder River is the setting of the pre-made Conan RPG adventure, which you ran for me. It is indeed. I wanted you to bring that up. <laughs> wow, this is our nerdiest episode yet. If you ever play uh, the 2D20 uh, Conan RPG, I think it's it's something like be- Beyond Thunder River or like Retake Thunder River or Defender. It's something on those lines. But I think it's, it's the Beyond. Player setting where basically drums Beyond Thunder River. We're just merging Conan story names now. John's a Tombuckoo <laughs> Thunder River. Yeah, okay. John's a film Thunder River. That might be the right. I don't know. Uh, it's been a long okay, time. Okay. Uh, so yeah, that's that one. Why do you think before Jules of Jules uh, of Galore? Um, because he's not. Because he's just come from the coast. Like, he's, he, he, he says, I was, um, he was a pirate, and then he was mercenarying, and then he does this. And then, and then that means that he, that means that Jews of Gaulor probably comes after this. Because, I mean, for one thing, it's way over there. It's way in the east. So he has to, has to go a long way to get there. Because um, that's in Gendia? I'm not India. even going to... It's, it's in an it's India thing. I don't know probably how his yep. name for it is. I think it's Gendia. Well, I can tell you now, Geordie, you basically are bang on the money uh, for all chronologies. Yes! If you are interested, so when it comes to Conan chronologies, here's your fun to sit down, people. Pick up your cups of tea. Have a sip. All right, here we just go. Listen. Conan chronologies. As uh, Geordie excellently said, Robert E. Howard never had a defined timeline. All we have is that some fans wrote to him with like a proposed timeline. As fans always they? do. I love watching the old Legend of Zelda timeline theory videos on YouTube. And I actually got very kind yeah. of upset when they released like, the official one. I'm like, no, that's the fun gone. Uh, some fans wrote to him and he kind of just replied and went, yeah, that's mostly right. And that became the basis. 
Um, and since then, it was picked up by uh, Lepard de Camp, Lynn Carter, who were the first people to redevelop and get Conan back into the publishing and add their own stories. And to be fair, I think they stuffed it up in several key areas. Uh-oh. I know, I know. They put Frost Giant's Daughter way too late in the timeline. It's clearly the first because one. Because that's like the first one. I know. They instead write in that Conan, after his thief stories, goes home for a bit and then goes back onto Queen of the Black Coast. Whoa, whoa. I know. That's ridiculous. I I know. And if it didn't give us uh, John Roberts' Conan the Valorous uh, story, which tries to like bend things round to make that work I would be very upset but what's even weirder is that later on they almost wreck on that own decision but that's where it sits so they do their story and then several authors as Morpus J's come out uh, try and create like an entire timeline uh, Robert Jordan did his own take on it um, he was wrong too just blatantly Great. wrong alright Conan the Can't Champion wait to hear what he got wrong clearly he puts Conan the Champion uh, between two stories set in Zamora where Conan the Champion clearly is set on the northern shore of the inland sea of oh, the Sea uh, by Tehran. I've forgotten the name. Jordi, can you help me? The Vladiat Sea. Thank you very much. Uh, so it's clearly that must take place after his adventures in Iron Shadows of the Moonlight. Oh, well. Yeah, obviously. That's right where it oh, is. There he is. He literally comes off. He's like, he gets like shipwrecked afterwards. And you're like, yeah, that's where he must have come from. But anyway... A really great guy comes along. Wait, how is he gonna? Okay, so yeah, I see your point. So he's he's a he has a story in Zamora, which is a desert, and then he has a story where he gets shipwrecked, and then he's back in the desert. Yeah, yeah that that makes sense. Doesn't work. But then a a great individual came along, who I know nothing about, so he might not be a great individual, uh, called William Gray, <laughs> and he proposed his complete timeline of all Conan Pache works, and he took everything released up to date. The only things he declared non-canon were the movie tie-ins and one novel sure. called Conan the Bold, which he just went, I can't do it. It doesn't work. Gotcha. What, what's happened in Conan the Bold? Conan the Bold starts off... Does it, get to, does it go to space? No, it basically... Does it go to the hood? It has Conan uh, in Samaria at the start of the story. Okay. And he ends up... There's a, an event happened and he's chasing this killer. Gotcha. But he ends up chasing him to Zamora, to Tehran, and then ultimately right. to Stygia. And because it has this glow-tropping uh, storytelling, other than saying, oh, well, he must have had his other adventures in between chapters, right. he just travels too far in one story for him to weirdly do mm. this massive loop of the continent and then go back to Samaria to start his next right. one. Right, so the idea would be that Conan is is going around following this killer and then just so happens in the meantime to visit the tower of the elephant and then later does what i don't know whatever he does in tehran he doesn't do anything in tehran oh, in actual stories he, if you read the pachets mate fantastic adventures robert jordan wrote two amazing uh tehran adventures conan the unconquered and conan the conan the unconquered and conan the i want to say victorious might be triumphant. He can't be unconquered and victorious. They mean the same thing. He's also wrote Conan the Invincible, Conan the Magnificent. I think it's Conan the Defender. It's okay. a great thing. Okay, well, some of those are literally just superhero names, but whatever. I, I love it. If you ever... Here's... Yeah? Can we talk about for a second about Robert E. Howard's world building? 
Like, it's whatever to calling, like, China Kitai. That makes some sense. Calling Tehran, Tehran. Tehran is named after Iran. But, wait, is it? Did Iran even exist until after Robert E. Howard? Well, yeah, alright. No, Iran does exist when Robert E. Howard's around, right? Okay, Jordan, I'm actually going to say let's pause and look up this fact. This is a political yeah, thing I do right. not want to go out. The, Ira- the Iranian Revolution, didn't that happen in like the 60s? So, um, it, I'm, I, Jordy made a pretty serious mistake there because he forgot that um, whilst Iran didn't really exist until the 1960s, Tehran, the capital, very much did exist. And, uh, that's probably what Robert E. Howard was referring to with Turan. Oops. Tell him what should be. One thing I really like about the um, world building is, so first you've got all the countries are sort of like inspired by a real world one. Fair enough. But what I like is that they're all at some kind of like different timelines. Like, Stygia is sort of like, oh, I'm going to show my ignorance again. I'm going to say ancient Egypt, but yeah, you got it might it. be the second kingdom face of like ancient egypt but mm-hmm. aquilonia is more like almost medieval yeah and with some even renaissance things like they have full plate armor which anyone who's complains about D online will know is like a renaissance thing okay D is a fantasy setting it, it can have whatever technology plate it wants yeah exactly it's the same goes for conan like, none of these people should have steel. This is a pre-Bronze Age civilization. <laughs> this is pre-Babylonian. Conan is from a country called Cimmeria, not to be confused with Sumeria. Like, the Sumerians weren't frickin' Scottish. He's called Conan. His dad is Conact. Do you know, I've spent so much time in, like, Pichet's works that I can't even remember some things... If some things were Robert E. Howard or came later, like, was Konak in a Robert E. Howard story? Or does someone I'm make that up? Absolutely later? certain he's not. Was Conan's granddad going on adventures, Robert E. Howard? No. No. Okay. I'll keep track. I'll keep track. Okay. It's actually quite amazing. When you, um, if you get into the read the RPG book, I'm sure. You... Oh, yeah. Or, um, Anytime Dreamed of. So many of the, like, the world building in there. I read it, I'm like, oh, that's from that Pache. <laughs> or when you read, like, later Pache works, um, reading the Legend of Kern books by Coleman, and they you visit all these different Sumerian tribes. And one of them came from John, John Roberts, Conan the Valorous. You know, they have, like, top knots, and that's, like, their distinctive feature. And you're yeah. like, that's from that one. And it all kind of, like clicks together i admire it and mm. i think there's a lot more good in the fashion that a lot of people give credit for particularly when it comes to world building because yeah. this is an interesting you, world you were talking about um how the different countries had different like technological levels and i interrupted you and it was very rude of me and i want to say that i actually kind of admire robert e howard for the boldness of it because i've recently been writing um, a story which takes place. And the general premise of the story is, you know, what if all the different cultural heroes from all these different cultures and religions were all kind of just ambling around at the same time? Like, what if Beowulf 
and Heracles lived in the same world. What would that be like? And um, the problem that I have is that when I start to write about the equivalent of Greece, and like Robert E. Howard, I've given it a different name, and I've divorced a lot of um, ancient Greek ideas from the history of the world. Like, the, the Greeks at this point, as they are in my story, should be living in a time when the Romans would have taken over. But I've decided that the Romans don't exist because I don't want to write about them. So what does the Greek culture look like when, um, you know, when it's allowed to continue? Like, I was kind of going to mention this last week when um, we were uh, recording our episode on the Song of Achilles, Duncan. But in a way, the Trojan War is sort of the end of Greece. Like, the ancient Greeks were looking back at the Trojan War as an age of heroes. And their own contemporary time couldn't live up to that. It was a, a better past, an idyllic, non-existent, mythical past. And then Greek, ancient Greeks stop. They don't exist anymore because they get taken over by the Romans. And then the Roman Empire falls apart and they become the Byzantines. And then they're conquered by, by the Arab Empire. And they don't exist. Like, Greece doesn't become an independent nation until the 20th century. So in a way, all of Greek history has been about looking back to this ideal past that never existed. You know? And that's why I think it's very important when you do create these cultures and you fantasize them, you know, you pull them into a world. Although you might say, well, it's like a get out of jail free card. It's not medieval mm-hmm. France, it's Aquilonia. It also, though, is very telling because then you're making the decisions what part of this perceived culture that you want to yeah. pull through. Yeah, because in this, in, in the, like, now we're going back to the negative parts of this story. Conan has this opinion that, like, he says a line of his story, which is super gross, where he sees this magnificent city and he doesn't believe that black people could have made it, you know? Like, and that's Robert E. Howard saying that he's putting his own political and ethical beliefs into this story. Like, he's fine with Aquilonia being the most advanced civilization, but Conan can't conceive of similar feats being accomplished by people who aren't white. The nation of Stygia then becomes this really key example of this. You know, it's not enough to just have a villain come from the Egyptian-coded nation. Mm -hmm. The whole nation has to be evil. Like, there are no good Stygians in Robert E. Howard's work. They're all bad. And it fucking sucks, because the way he describes Stygian magic is super cool. It's awesome. Like, he's so good at describing it. And you're like, oh yeah, this is a fantastic antagonist. Because they come from antagonist land, where the bad guys live. The name's Stygia, Duncan. You know what it means, right? Something to do with darkness and evil? Basically, the word Stygian means black. But it comes from the River Styx, the underworld. It's a chthonic name. It also isn't Egyptian. (laughs) It's Greek. (laughs) Whatever. But yeah, it's like, it's literally tying together all these different nasty ideas. It's literally a country called Black. And it's also a country that's named for the underworld. Couldn't get more sinister, you know? No, you can't. And it's, it's a shame because... Oh, okay. I'm going to have to step back into Pache's people. Oh boy. Geordie, there's a Conan Pache trilogy called Anok, Heretic of Stygia about mm. a Stygian 
Um, it's a whole trilogy about a Stygian occult who basically rebels. I've never read it. It's just sitting on my shelf. But that exists. <laughs> uh, does he also have a band of misfit adventurers who he goes on adventures with and maybe has a panther he goes along with? You know, the, the one good guy from an evil race? I don't know about the panther bit, but definitely the first bit. <sighs> like, it's pretty obvious that we have really complicated feelings about this because, like we said, dude's a good writer and he does it for the sake of evil. And it sucks because I I'm, I feel really strongly of the opinion that Robert E. Howard is better than H.P. Lovecraft. He's a better writer. He writes in more enjoyable things. And maybe he didn't create a whole new genre of literature. But goddamn, if his style of writing pulpy action adventure doesn't fucking hold up. Conan gets his leg trapped in a bear trap at the end of a story. That's awesome. He, he like goes into a knife fight with a wizard firing a laser gun. Like, he gets to have, for the first time ever, he gets to have the, the woman of the story. And sure, she does get captured. And sure, she does get overpowered and tied up. But she gets, like, the finishing blow. She's the one who saves the day. Like, he's so close. He's so close to writing something really good and cool. It's a shame. Could we say he's so close? I feel like if Robert E. Howe could just be writing, I'm going to say at least 40 years later, maybe 50 he doesn't even need to write 40 years later. He just needs a time traveller to go back, join weird comics or weird tales or whatever his magazine was called and just be like, you know what? Let's just uh, cross this line out, you know? Don't, you know, uh, Robbie, I, I like this draft you're sending me, but um, I wonder if you could spruce it up in this way. Sure thing, man. Say you got a funny voice and you dress strange and you have a beard and... Hey, is your name Duncan? What are you? Hey, they Conan's ghost warned me about you. Get away from me. <laughs> I would be so much like, listen, done a really good job, Robbie. You've done amazingly. I'm just going to take these papers with me and we're just going to get them all tight up. Oh, we might make, you know, the few grammatical changes. You know, we're just, you know, the correct, the right, the old comma. And then I'll just sit there and be like, okay, scissors, cut that, cut that. Because that's what it needs. It doesn't yep. need a... You bitching about work, Duncan. No, I didn't. Now tell me, please, what happened in Hand of Nurgle? I need to know! If I could have the opportunity to be like, please, what was the end of this plot? Why can't you just put bullet points? Bullet point your plot, sir. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a counter going. This is like number seven, Pachés. A man has written the end of Hand of Nurgle, which is a, a Robert E. Howard story that Nurgle, uh, right? he never got to finish. And I'll tell you now, the ending, it's not good. Oh dear. Hand of Nurgle is the one where he fights a big toad, right? No, not in the version I read. Okay, gotcha. That's, uh, that's the, he fights a big toad in the Dark Horse adaptation of Halls of the Dead. It's sick. It's so sick. Uh, is Hand of Nurgle about the evil tree? Hand of Nurgle, in the Dark Horse adaptation, it is about an evil tree. Okay, in the, I, I read that one. Uh, Le Prague de Camp adaption, it's about warring sorcerers in a... Um, in a sort of like prince state outside of Tehran. Okay. I think that's about that covers I think it. I like the tree. I like the tree too. Dark Horse did excellent rewrites. Yeah, they sure did. I man, it's a pity they never got to finish. And also sucks that a really bad artist just took over at towards the end. Talking about no, I, th I think it's, this is really good to kind of talk about because I think this exemplifies our major point. Uh, it's one I've always brought up um, in regards to the Robbie E. Howe story. Uh, Man-Eaters of Zambala. 
Yeah. Now, that is quite possibly the single most racist story he ever wrote, starring Conan, and was the only one that I struggled to finish. I, I almost finished it out of, like, scholarly interest, then enjoyment, mm-hmm. because it is so appalling. Roy Thomas redid that story in a, an issue of Savage Sword of Conan, and he, to put it bluntly, censored it. And it made it, if not good, palatable. Yeah. And it just shows how they all of this, the good stories are there, and it just mm-hmm. needs an edit. And that's why the comic adaptations I really enjoy so much, because they just give it that little edit. Mm. That justification. And can you once give me an issue of a comic in which a woman had previously been described as being yellow, and then in the comic book was literally yellow, like, like a sharpie yellow. Yes, I did. That would be Marvel's King Conan. Um, though that was an issue where in the adaptation of Katai, and I don't know what the standards were in Marvel um, in the late 70s to depict people of Asian descent. But in this story, mm. either someone had misunderstood the text or this was how they did it at Marvel, in which case it is very wrong. Uh, but mm. they literally showed these people to be yellow, like Sharpie, Charles Crayon yellow, which mm, is interesting because they don't do it. In that same comic book series, about 20 issues later, they don't do it. They draw questionable eyebrows, <laughs> but they stop doing that. So I don't know if it was just I that I guess issue. there was a memo. I would hope so. I would hope someone saw that high up and just went, um, gentlemen, what are you doing? And there's some bashful colorist just like, sorry, the, the note said yellow. And they're like, we didn't yeah. mean literally. I ima- imagine that person listening to Bruce Springsteen's Born of the USA, man, you know? Like the images in their head, like, why is he going off to a foreign land to kill the yellow man? What's, um, what did Homer Simpson do to him? That's not fair. Should we get back to talking about red nails? I think I've said my piece. I've talked about the, the crazy names, um, the mispotential of Valeria, um, the imagery of the red nails being driven into a column to represent all their kills. Um, I think that's pretty cool. I don't have a lot else to say about it. Um, the action adventure's pretty good. There's a neat torture device if you're into that. Um, a nice double cross. The wizard does kind of come out of nowhere. I, he is, I realize reading it through this time, he's set up a lot better than I remember. He is mentioned several times, and they talk about people have been going missing. So yeah, uh, I feel like it's better set up than I initially gave it credit. But boy, howdy, does the undead wizard just come out of nowhere. I strongly, strongly disagree. Okay. You say he gets set up. Geordie, he gets foreshadowed so much in this plot. It's true. It, it's true. And it, it just, he's just so overwhelming in his sudden appearance at the end. It just, it, it, it's crazy. I he think, does get set up a lot. You're right. I think an element of that is, so this character, this wizard, it set up that he was one of the original founders of this war. He was sort of the third side where these two factions went off. And that he eventually got betrayed and murdered long ago. But mm-hmm. he didn't quite get killed. Instead, they threw him into the Underdark, into the crypt, and just assumed that you know, he'd die. Oh my god, he's the Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> he's if the Count of Monte Cristo found a ray gun. I, I don't, that's a massive spoiler for the Count of Monte Cristo for me. I have no idea that's what That happened. he doesn't get a ray gun? I know. 
Um, but they really, I know service that like people go missing. They talk about uh, even bodies being like unturned from like the crypts, and you get the idea that this person has turned to cannibalism and he's got digging darker and darker through the history of this ancient city to find something. But he does come out of nowhere in the sense that he comes out of the last two pages, kills pretty much everyone. 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 Pretty much everyone. He literally Conan establishes he's like there'll be sixteen of them left. I can take them. Yeah, it's true. Conan is like, it's time for eradication. This this genus is gone. I'm ready to do this. <laughs> it's um you don't really process it later until you're like, oh my god, this civilization has been wiped out by the course of this story. It's about, let me think, so there's about 40 of one side, the Takulakalis, and about 20 or 20, we'll call it 25 at the start of mm. the alternate side, the Exolutus. I'm very really sorry. I, I hope this doesn't come offensive. They're not a real people, Duncan. <laughs> that is true. Uh, and they certainly aren't after the course of this story. So that's what, 65 people all die. <laughs> Yeah. And it's not completely down to Conan, but I feel like they would have lasted maybe another fortnight. They could have. What if they came to peace, Duncan? What if Conan had made them all hold hands? They could have all joined together in fraternity and walked out. I always want to see him like force people around the table. But <coughs> I do like the fact that he comes in, he just goes, yeah, how much do you want? treasure also how he picks the side isn't this i really like this moment because it almost reminds me of an occasions in like D D campaigns absolutely where that's exactly what i'm thinking of he comes in and it's the, the side basically gets picked because when he walks into the room or actually when valeria walks into valeria. the room one side is sort of the underdog and he just instinctively mm-hmm. sides with them yeah even though they're winning like their the side is winning in that one scenario the other side happens to be winning and it's like hey pick on someone your own size and then she comes in and chops his head off and then fights like five guys by herself because valeria is so fucking cool whatever it's such a shame valeria is so cool and unfortunately every attempt to expand on her character that i've read uh since this story has all fallen flat marvel yeah. i do not like the character of Baylet. like it's um, that's actually a controversial opinion i think among fans of Conan, because all the writers seem to be obsessed with her. I can understand why it's the only woman Conan's ever loved, but I do not find her interesting. Valeria could have been interesting, but the only way that he, that, Con- that Robert E. Howard knows how to make her, like, badass and cool is to make her a misogynist. It says in the text of the book she hates women. Basically, Robert E. Howard didn't know that the patriarchy was a thing. If he knew about that, he basically probably would have made her like a feminist like that's kind of what he's trying to write her as but he just can't do it he cannot conceive of it it's a shame because that more so than like the actual plot of her like being captured near the end that's what undermines her character that's what makes you go i don't want to spend loads of time with valeria i think it falls apart much earlier than that but yeah it definitely doesn't help you don't like bailet Nah. So if people don't know, Bela is the main character of the... Not main character. The principal side character of Queen of the Black Coast. And the titular character. And she's often titular, famed as... Duncan. 
uh, Conan's first true love. Why don't you like her? She dies immediately. Like, how am I supposed to get attached to her when she's in, like, half a story and she dies off screen and then the end of it is just Conan feeling sad about it? I'm going to try and explain that. In this story, there's, like, a four-year time jump between part, like, part one and part two. That time jump was filled in by one novel, which I don't think contributed to her popularity, by Paul Anderson of uh, Broken Sword fame. But she appeared in over 40 issues of Marvel's Conan the Barbarian, where Roy Thomas plots out the entire four-year interlude. Which is a lot. Like, 40 issues is probably, like, four real-life years, right? Yeah. He did it. He uh, Roy Thomas is maybe my favourite fashion author. He did so much in those early days of Conan the comic in terms of loyalty to the character, getting the voice, working around the censors, and for the first 110-ish issues, Roy basically went by every real-life year is a year for Conan. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to plot out Conan based on that Metrodome. And it does so well. And you get these lovely moments where he stops and kind of go, thinks back on like two years ago when he was doing this. And it, it adds so much to that character arc. And what he does with Baylor is he does a really nice transition from the start of the story, where it's like this fiery kind of passionate love um, that Conan and Baylor have. In fact, he describes it, it's the transition of them being lovers to them being each other's love. Mm. And it works so beautifully well. Whereas my experience of Baylet was, one, reading the story and being like, oh, that was it. She was killed by a flying monkey. And then my next encounter with her was in the Dark Horse run, in which she was in a bunch of really bad stories, which were so bad I regretted spending money on them and mostly skipped. And also, it didn't help that the Comixology app, they clearly weren't trying either, because they didn't even do the guided view. They just didn't do it. Guided view is supposed to be like it zooms in on each panel and shows you each thing happening in sequential order, and you can even do really clever stuff with it, like by show, showing like half of a panel and then showing you the other half afterwards to show you the full thing. But they literally didn't even line, like they didn't even do the guided view, so I just skipped it. And uh, the bits of it I did read, I was like, "Well, that sucked. Why is Conan in Samaria again? What's he doing there? Why is Bailey in Samaria? She doesn't belong in Samaria." Brian Wood is a comic writer that I have a lot of issue with, mostly because I've only actually read two series by him, the his Conan work and his Star Wars work, and both of them I thought were appalling. But I have gone out on the internet. Some people do really like his run. I think, for me, he... Every single thing we've discussed, Duncan, every book we run in this series, people have loved, and we have had very differing opinion on those. My opinion on fantasy fans is being embittered by our podcast. I do like that. I do like the idea that uh, we do sound quite apart. But some people would agree. And that's it's okay. It is okay. In fact, I'm happy to hear that other people got enjoyment out of stories that I couldn't. Like, you, Of course. Yeah, of course. People, you know, they're allowed to be wrong. Like, let's look at Red Nails as an example. If you can sort of recognise uh, the racism and it doesn't distract you from enjoying the positives of this story. I am happy for you. If you enjoy this story because the racism's in it, I don't like Fuck you. Fuck you. Fuck you. Yeah, I don't... 
one thing I do worry about, Duncan, is by talking about Conan stories, I kind of worry about us getting, like, fans who like it completely without, uh, you know, without any, what's the word? Reservations? Reservations, thank you. Yeah, I worry about that. Like, I, I, that is, it, it, it concerns me. So yeah, go fuck yourself. Like, hey, you. Proud boy. I'm gonna fucking beat the shit out of you. I'm now just gonna calm back down the Discord. Geordie has spilt some tea. Yes. Let's finish that down, but I agree that... I'm gonna read some more passages about Conan's glistening muscles. I'm gonna go to the gym, get real buff, and then I'm gonna kick your teeth in, you son of a gun. The reason why, though, we're still talking about this, and why we are trying to recommend... Because what we're doing, we're publicising Robert E. Howard. And the reason we're trying to do this is because we... I do love what he does well. Uh, I think he made yep. a contribution to literature that often does seem to get overlooked. And mm. that's why I'm such a big fan of a lot of the adaptations. Because the core there is amazing and deserves to be admired and respected. And we shouldn't just talk about good books. You know, we've talked about a bunch of bad books. Most of the time we didn't know they were going to be bad. But we've also looked at books... And we're going to look at books which we know aren't going to be high art. And that's okay. Because we're trying to build a scope of, like, the fantasy genre. The fantasy genre can't just be cherry-picked. It can't just be the good stuff. We've got to look at the rough stuff, too. So I think that is the question that I'm going to have to throw out there for this week. People, let us know. How do you reconcile with Robert E. Howe's works you know do you put your blinders on when you're going through it when you recommend it to people do you say do you put it in as a caveat or do you go listen I'm not saying I like it because of this but I do really enjoy this aspect mm-hmm. I, I'm really sorry that I didn't have a positive experience with this Conan story because this was a week where I really could have used a Conan story you know because I was feeling really fed up with, like, modern civilization, and could have really done with going back to exploring a state of barbarism. I'm searching for jobs right now. It's my least favorite thing to do. I really could use the idea of smashing my computer apart and just going into the woods, you know? Very appealing this week. So I've kind of let down that I didn't get the full enjoyment, which I could have had. So let's go to that final question, Dordie. Red Nails. Do you recommend it? If so, who to? I can only recommend it to fans of Conan who have probably already read it. Um, I haven't read any adaptations of it which I can recommend. The only adaptation I read of it was this comic book called uh, The Sumerian. And it sucked. It was really bad. Um, actually, probably... I mean, it's less racist, but it's much more poorly told than the original story. What do I have to say about this story? It's got everything that makes Robert E. Howard good and everything that makes Robert E. Howard bad. I kind of feel like... I think it's slapped down the middle. I think it is a 50-50 good and bad. Overall, I think that's negative. I think that has to be negative. Because Robert E. Howard could be better. We've seen him be better. So, yeah. I can't recommend it to people. As for me, I do recommend Red Nails. Okay. The Roy Thomas Barry Winter Smith adaptation done by Marvel. <laughs> it's an excellent comic book series, beautiful art, and it does edit round a lot of the more egregious parts of this plot. 
as for the original by Robert E. Howard, either you're a fan of Conan, in which case you probably already read it, or if you're interested in getting into Conan, chances are you're going to buy this in a collection with other stories. Mm-hmm. If you do that, then... You've it, already spent your money. You've already spent your money. It's in your ballpark. I don't think, even as a fan, or, well, firstly, no one should be judging me, but if you start reading it and you go, no, not for me, fair play to you. If anything... I mean, I would not be. I would understand if people didn't keep past the second paragraph, you know. Completely, but there are Conan stories out there. If you are interested in the character and you're like, "But Duncan, you know, I don't want to read a story that's going to make me feel kind of disgusted," then, as we said in our very first ever episode, Tower of the Elephant is, while not perfect, definitely far less egregious than this story, and something that I would For recommend. Sure. For sure. And you know what? We we are. We have we both have our complicated, but we're both fans of Robert E. Howard, so we're sure as hell going to keep talking about his, his Conan stories. So we're going to build up a list of what ones we think are, you know, cool and those which aren't. Uh, we don't need to talk about Veil of Lost Women. That's in the no camp. Uh, no redeeming qualities. Uh, don't read that one. Shadows of Zambola. We've said that one as well. We're going to have to revisit people of the Black Circle. We're going to have to revisit Beyond the Black River as well. Ugh. And Queen of the Black Coast. I, I, you know what? I'm fine with that one. I feel like I'm due for a re-examination of that one. Well. Um, we don't need to read the Beyond the Black River. Holy smokes, no. So, so racist. But we're not going to read them next week, are we, Geordie? Now no, we're not. <laughs> you, I don't know what we're going to read next week. Maybe we are going to read them. So, people, for next book club... I invite you to join me and Geordie in reading a book by an author that I really enjoy. I've read two trilogies by this man before. This is the start of his next, the next trilogy he wrote. I'm so nervous. He, I believe, is a fantastic author and one of the few authors that I think really nails when people banded that term kind of grimdark. It has a bit of a murky meaning. Uh-oh. But I think he does it quite well. This story... I haven't read yet. And in many respects, I was inspired by Red Nails. Because they both have the word red in the name. Oh, is this Red Sister? This is indeed Red Sister by Mark Lawrence. Alright, people never shut the fuck up about this book. So here we go. I think this is probably going to be... This is probably going to be our most basic bitch read yet. I don't know what this book's about. I've just read the opening paragraph 8,000 times on Reddit. So here we go. I'm looking forward to this one so much. I'm taking away on holiday with me. If I only read one book, it'll be this. If I read two, it'll be Joe Abercrombie's The Heroes. I will get you into Joe Abercrombie one day. I don't... I don't... What, what, whatever, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for coming on to our book club. If you have... We've talked a lot today and a lot of kind of rather intense themes around the works of Robert E. Howard. Mm-hmm. We'd love to hear kind of your input. You know, this is a really complex matter and we're not even the most insightful. You know, we're two, we're two men standing in our, you know, bedrooms in England reporting this for you. You know, we won't have the best insight. It'd be good to really That's hear true. what other people think from their own sort of world perspectives. So let us know. And you can let us know at ifthisjustfantasypodcast at gmail.com. You sure can. <sighs> Man, why... We should have Valeria comics instead of Red Sonia comics, you know? Mate, if you ever read the only Valeria comic, you may take those words back. I'm just saying, if I was to adapt A Witch Shall Be Born 
there's a character in it called Valerius. Why don't we make him into Valeria, you know? like I'm not going to lie. I would be down with that. <sighs> That's another episode. I've been your host, Geordie Bailey. I've been your other host, Duncan Nickel. Till next time. So long, everybody.